Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hey, everybody. Uh, boy, oh, boy. We got one with uh, some current news for... For a change, uh, you may know that we, I do these once a week, so I, I record them in advance and we put them together. It takes a little bit of effort and time. We, we put this to bed usually like on a Friday and stuff happens and uh, sometimes it's it's kind of important. Uh, the president's in Walter Reed, uh, for example, and oh, of course everybody w- wishes him well, uh, just like we wish uh, anyone who gets this horrible virus uh, wish them well and how we mourn the over 210,000 who have died. This just puts in such stark relief uh, how pathetic the response of this president to this virus has been. He had a chance to handle this right from the beginning. We, We learned from Bob Woodward that the president knew about this uh, back in February. He knew what it was. Then he lied about it to the American people and said it was a hoax. The contrast between his campaign and the Biden campaign could not be starker. At the debate, if you watched it, you saw the president ridicule Joe Biden for always wearing the mask. And of course, uh, his family was there in the front row of the debate, not wearing masks. And his uh, wife, uh, turns out, is, is positive as well. We extend our wishes and hopes for her recovery as well. But my goodness, how can any American now vote for this man? The focus now has to be on COVID. Uh, a number of my Former colleagues were at the nomination ceremony at at the Rose Garden for Judge Coney Barrett, not wearing masks. Or I guess Tom Tillis, I saw him with a mask, but not social distancing. And I wish them well. I texted Senator Lee. uh, I said, I hear you tested positive. Stay away from me. Uh, It was a nice exchange. And I wish everybody health, good health, Uh, everybody who's listening, good health. This is uh, ridiculous. We have Norm Ornstein coming up. Norm was at the debate in Cleveland, was eyewitness to the uh, Trump family entering with masks, taking them off, Uh, people from the Cleveland Clinic bringing the masks, and they're refusing to wear them. Uh, This, uh, this is a This is what you get when you don't really understand your job. So all of you out there, whatever job you have, please, please try to understand it. All righty. We'll be right back with uh, the rest of the Al Franken podcast. A great one. 
as always. Before we go to Norma, I, I just want to alert fans of the podcast that we have launched the Al Franken Podcast online store, where you can get items such as the Al Franken mug and my I Hate Ted Cruz pint glass, the caricature I drew of Cruz sitting directly across from him in the Judiciary Committee, and it's etched onto a fine 16-ounce glass. You'll hate it, I guarantee. Just go to alfranken.com and hit store. Did you know that learning actually makes a sound? It's true. Listen. That's the sound of you learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. For example, let's say you're in Berlin and you want to visit the Führer bunker. It's pretty simple, actually. Wo ist der Führer bunker? Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com franken. Get 55% off at babbel.com franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L, dot com slash franken rules and restrictions may apply angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well just bring them your project online or with the angie app and answer a few questions with angie you can book instantly at an upfront price or request and compare quotes from multiple pros so you can find the best price for your project so the next time you have a home project just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You went to the debate. You were in Cleveland. We were in Cleveland. We drove to Cleveland to avoid uh, taking an airplane and we're in the audience, which was an extraordinary thing. Uh, I've been to a lot of the debates before. I've had a long relationship with the Commission on Presidential Debates. Uh, this one, of course, was uh, run through the Cleveland Clinic. We all had to get uh, the uh, full Monty uh, COVID test and wait for hours self-isolating until we could get the determination that we were negative. And then it was a hall, uh, you know, an auditorium that was fairly big, but they basically had only 70 or so people there. And including Ivanka and Jared, and how much? How much of the family was there? How much of his family? Well, you know, we could see them come in, and it was uh, Ivanka and Jared and uh, a couple of the kids, and they had an entourage that included their usual suspects from Congress: Jim Jordan and Marsha Blackburn. What was interesting about that is they had set up all of these health protocols to protect people. So not only. Uh, were we required to take the test and be negative? We had to wear wristbands to show it. They took our temperatures coming in and all over the place. And with all of that, everybody wore masks. And the family and the entourage for Trump came in, sat down in the front row, 
had masks on as they walked in. And as soon as they sat down, they took the masks off. And uh, people from the Cleveland Clinic went over, handed them new masks and asked them to put on the mask because that was a requirement for everybody. And they refused. It was just another sort of affirmation of uh, what kind of people uh, the country's dealing with here. Who would have thought? That's just shocking. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so everybody had sort of the same reaction to the debate. Well, not. I, I guess there are some people thought it was uh, both uh, candidates were terrible. My feeling is that one of the candidates was especially terrible. And let me tell you which one. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm uh, suspenseful. Yes, which one? I think Trump. I think Trump uh, was was very bad. Damn, I, I, it just happens I agree with you. You know, I, I, I think that there are some strengths in what Biden did. I, I you know, I wish wish he had some one-liners to anticipate. Yeah. Because you could anticipate Trump being a jerk, didn't you think? Uh, I think uh, that that was like 100%, yes. So what was the feeling in the room? Was there a deflation? Uh, was there, um, I mean, everyone's in a mask, so. Yeah. But you could feel it. It was you could shock, feel it. awe, and horror. You know, the way I felt, because we had to sit there and, you know, Chris Wallace started out saying the audience is uh, not participating in this. You applaud mm-hmm. when they come in, you applaud when they leave, and otherwise you stay silent. And everybody complied with that. But the feeling that I had through most of it, remember the scene in Kill Bill 2 where they bury Uma Thurman alive? Mm-hmm. put her into this coffin and put the dirt over it. And you're like, you know, she's stuck there. And it's a feeling of horror. It was like being trapped in this room where you could not move. You couldn't get up. You couldn't uh, do more than quietly gag and try and deal with the throw up in your mouth. <laughs> Did you throw up in your mouth? Cause that uh, just a tiny bit, but it was also, you know, because of the way the room was set up and the small, audience size, we were really not very far from the participants. So we're, you know, yards away from Trump. And it was just scary as could be as he went on these rants. It was like having a monster there while you're trapped and can't move. And the the feeling in the room, you know, to whatever extent you can get a vibe really was shock. You know, Everybody expected him to be his usual bombastic self. We all remember the debates from the primaries and the uh, debates with Hillary Clinton. But doing it at this level was pretty shocking. And of course, some of the statements that he made, the one big takeaway, the Proud Boys, and then the predictable, uh, as he's done with almost every official in his administration who's come clean about his corruption or his uh, collusion, where he follows by saying, well, I don't really know them. You know, he did it with Manafort. He was his campaign manager. He was just a peripheral figure. I, you know, had him in the room a few times, or I don't really know who that is. Maybe I was, uh, took a picture with him that he would then say he didn't know what the Proud Boys were. But the shock that he would not just fail to uh, denounce white supremacists, but would get them ready to act. And I, I just, I have to add, Al, that we just saw a story, I believe it was an NBC News story uh, from Dateline, 
that the Department of Homeland Security sent instructions around within the department for people to say positive things about Kyle Rittenhouse, the murderer from Kenosha, who went out, of course, with his assault rifle and killed two people, which, you know, basically is just a a reinforcement that this was not uh, just a mistake or a misstatement on his part. This is a government-wide policy, an executive branch-wide policy of support for white supremacists, terrorists, and murderers uh, that just is beyond the pale. So what what, uh, inferences can we draw from this in terms of Trump's (laughs) approach to this election? I mean, that's sort of the $64,000 question is, is he anticipating uh, losing the vote, but winning in the courts or winning by intimidation? Or is, is it like a plan that he had? Or is he just desperate and out of control? Is he so angry and so desperate that he's out of control? And uh, what was going on there? I believe he is angry and desperate and that he does have a plan. And the plan which was not just in the statement about the Proud Boys. And when it's standby, they knew exactly what he meant. And he can denounce them now, which he won't do, say he doesn't know who they are, um, get his minions to backpedal, but they know exactly what he meant. And remember, he also talked about how his uh, loyal followers, just trying to make sure the election is safe, were kept out of the uh, polling places in Philadelphia, which was uh, basically a lie. Uh, well, no, they, they were kept out, but they aren't allowed in. They, these were, yeah, they're not allowed in. Poll watchers uh, have to if, be identified ahead of time, approved to be poll watchers. And they have to be at an official site, and this yes. was not uh, a, an election site. So he misstated that. He, of course, lied about these ballots There isn't a day that goes by when I don't think of the Mary McCarthy comment uh, that every word, including a and the, is a lie. But all of it designed to discredit the election and basically to send people out into the streets, a whole lot of them are going to be armed, to try to intimidate voters and to discredit the ballots sent in by mail because they will not be ones where they can intimidate them in advance. We know now that William DeJoy, his hand-picked postmaster general, defied a a court order on slowing down the mails and ordered him to put back in the mail sorting machines that he had taken out. And DeJoy said, we've dismantled and basically destroyed them, which means he's destroyed government property to keep the mails from going out. They uh, refused or failed to send out almost 2 million change of address forms around the country which means that people will not get in the mail uh, the absentee ballot forms that uh, would otherwise go out to them. The systematic attempt to disrupt the vote, to suppress the vote, and then very possibly to use violence during the early election days and the election day itself, and to very probably try to find a way to declare victory on election eve uh, and figure out ways to stop the vote. These are not just things that we uh, exaggerate or that are made up out of whole cloth because he's talking about them openly. This is just like 
Russia, if you're listening, find the 30,000 uh, emails. That was a joke. Openly colluding. Yeah, yeah, right. Just like injecting the disinfectant. That, that came up in the debate. And by the way, maybe you could inject some bleach in your arm and that would take care of it. This is the that same thing. That was said sarcastically, you seem, know that. I, that I, was said sarcastically. And so here's the deal. Yeah, it was sarcastic. Just listen. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it would be interesting to check that. So that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. He, he's sarcastic in a very different way than most people. That, and that was sarcastic uh, just now. But he, here's the thing about stealing the election. Biden was very, very explicit about saying, nope, we're going to have an election. Whoever wins, wins. Biden, I think, was telling us, telling Americans, vote. Go ahead, just vote. And I do believe that if we scare people to thinking your vote isn't going to count, your, your mail-in vote isn't going to count, that fewer people will vote. So I'm just telling all my listeners that because of this, even more so, the importance that you vote and that your friends vote and everyone you know votes, that's the way we beat them. Because I think the only way he doesn't steal this election is if he can't. That's, I, I think you're spot on there. And I'm actually more hopeful now. You know, people have been criticizing the debates and saying, what do we need these for anymore? And, you know, this was just a horrible experience. Uh, they, you know, the word shit show was used uh, by almost everybody. Dana Bash on CNN immediately said shit show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was it was just uh, great to see. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, for all of that, I actually, uh, after the nightmare of sitting through that uh, yards from Trump, I reflected on it a little bit and I thought, you know, this actually was extremely valuable in one particular way. For an awful lot of voters out there who don't follow this stuff day to day, they've seen Trump bloviate and they've seen him lie here and there. They, you know, hear about the tweets or they read the tweets. They see some of the comments he's made in press conferences. But you had people watching him in a sustained way for 90 minutes and seeing the sociopath turn into psychopath, the overt white supremacy. The uh, and anti-Semitism, by the way, the Proud Boys are deeply, deeply anti-Semitic. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, I just thought they were just racist. Oh, well, that's nice to know. Yeah, occasionally they go together. I don't know why. Yeah, but I'll stay away from. If I see a Proud Boy, I'll just say, "Oh boy, I'm from Minnesota. I'm a Lutheran." <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> that's and I'm white. I'm a white. Lutheran. I'm a white Lutheran. Uh, well, you could see yeah, I'm white. Yeah. But uh, you could, you might think I'm Jewish, but boy, am I not. Yeah. I'll tell yeah. you that, the proud boy. <laughs> Learn how to pronounce the word Aryan. Uh, anyhow, uh, you know, they saw what a monster he is and in a sustained way. And I think that's going to actually help when people vote. I think it's going to make some difference at the margins. And what I'm hopeful for is that 
In a state like Florida, they've already started to process the votes by mail coming in. They've had votes by mail coming in for a little while. If uh, that means we could well, if this is not close, get a result from Florida relatively early on the evening of November 3rd. And if he loses Florida, he has no claim whatsoever to declare victory. That's a that's a big if. That's a big if. Florida has. It's a big if. But you know there are other states that will follow along the the way. What what I'm most worried about on election day itself, and we've seen this in a couple of instances. It's almost like they're doing beta tests. Is that we're going to get these armed thugs out there, basically blocking the entrance to polling places. Now that's illegal, but. I don't know in some places whether the police will actually step in and make them move away. And one of the things that's been little noticed here, one of the most pivotal court decisions that we've had involving elections, and by the way, we've had many instances, the lawyer whom you know well, Mark Elias, has been extraordinarily active in 35 states and has gotten many courts to overturn some of these rulings that have made it more difficult for people to vote. We've actually had some pretty good decisions out there in uh, a number of states, including ones like Montana just the other day. We had a court decision in New Jersey. A couple of decades ago, the Republican Party was suppressing votes by putting out uh, off-duty cops in uniform with their weapons, basically trying to scare off and intimidate voters And it was blatant enough that they got sued and a judge worked out a consent decree where nationwide they agreed they wouldn't do this anymore. And just this year, a judge lifted that consent decree. It expired. It was not reinstated. It was the same reasoning as John Roberts used in the Shelby County decision eviscerating the Voting Rights Act that, well, we're not seeing racism anymore, he said. Why? Because you had a Voting Rights Act. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, that's like saying in a torrential rainstorm uh, that you don't need your umbrella anymore because you're not getting wet. And in the same way, we hadn't seen this kind of voter intimidation because they'd been blocked legally from doing it, and now they're not blocked. And you can imagine police and off-duty police standing by while they keep people from voting. And if those kinds of things happen. And then people try to work their way through to get to the polling place. They might be roughed up. We might see violence. And then you worry about Trump stepping in, knowing he's going to lose and taking it to the next level of autocracy, uh, which is saying this is out of control and I'm stopping the election, which he cannot do legally, but still doing things legally has never stopped him before. Uh, so the next debate is going to be a town hall, right? Yes. So almost by definition, kind of, I think it's going to be different because it's going to be, you know, uh, at least Biden getting off his stool or whatever it is and walking up to uh, a woman who asked about having pre-existing conditions and talking to her. And then, <laughs> and I hope that they will actually be able to get into issues. I, I'm so frustrated about something like healthcare, we have such a case against Trump. It's so cut and dried. Basically, he wants to unravel the ACA, meaning that people will not have, the who have pre-existing conditions will not have protection. Also, he said during the 16 
campaign that he was going to repeal and replace Obamacare and replace it with something terrific. That he, when he didn't do that, he said, "Who knew healthcare was complicated?" And the answer to that is, everyone, you schmuck, except you. The Supreme Court nomination is the ACA is on the line there. It was impossible to actually get any kind of substantive discussion, and I hope we'll see that in the next one. Are, 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 is, is the debate commission going to change some rules? They are. They um, uh, are going to at least have a microphone cutoff provision for the moderator. The moderator of the next debate is Steve Scully from C-SPAN, who certainly knows how to conduct a town hall under normal circumstances. As we left the debate hall uh, in Cleveland, I bumped into Steve. His his face was a little (laughs) bit paler. (laughs) For for those who don't watch a lot of uh, C-SPAN, Steve... C-SPAN is very interesting because they're great about this. C-SPAN, of course, was started by the cable industry, right? Cable TV yeah. to put, and it's yeah. a public affairs. Brian Lamb. Brian Lamb, and it's great because they just have to be, they're neutral. Boy, are they neutral. And I remember going on uh, C-SPAN when, with my book, Rush Limbaugh's Big Fat Idiot and Other Observations, when I first came out, and I was doing jokes and I was being interviewed. I can't remember who, who it was, but it was it was someone like Steve Scully. And I was doing jokes and they can't laugh because that shows some uh, some bias. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was great because I could see them wanting to laugh, but not laughing. Yeah. And I really yeah. respect that. And you tried really, really hard to get them to laugh. <laughs> Yeah, I remember, oh, God, on that thing, I just said something about mistakes I had made, and I said that I'd done a fundraiser for Pol Pot. And then uh, I remember taking phone calls, and I I got one from a right-wing woman who didn't like anything I said. But then she said, I said, is there anything I said that you liked? And she said, I like the Pol Pot joke. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so the point is, is that Steve Scully is the most neutral person he just that's what he does but he's pretty mild-mannered you know if if you had steve uh, scully moderating a town hall between barack obama and mitt romney you couldn't ask for anybody better to do that any normal candidates this will be a challenge but i also think there's a natural sort of break on trump in this setting because you're being asked questions by voters. And if you go completely off the rails the way he did here, it's going to be harder and more jarring. And you can imagine an average voter saying to him, cut that stuff out, try and be a president. That would be more effective than uh, what Chris Wallace tried to do. This sort of been my point where people say, well, we shouldn't have any more debates. That was ridiculous. This format really is the perfect response to this because yeah. you can't do what he did when they're actual human beings, Americans are asking questions because the next one's going to get up and go, Mr. President, you're, you're being ridiculous or something to that effect. Exactly what you're saying. Before we move away from uh, what you said about the Affordable Care Act, one of the things that I wish Joe had done, because it's just it's so Trump, for the last six months, in particular, every time he's been asked about the Affordable Care Act, the lawsuit that his administration ardently supports to completely eliminate it, 
he has said, we've got a, a better healthcare plan and it'll be there in two weeks. That's right. And every week he has said, it'll be there in two weeks. And I just, I was sitting there, uh, you know, biting my tongue, wanting to shout out to Joe uh, Biden. Why don't you say you said it would be there in two <laughs> he weeks? Says, you said he said like seven weeks ago or eight weeks ago, it would be there in two yeah. weeks. Well, of course, yeah. he's never had a plan. He doesn't There's know no plan, a thing about And there will care. not be a plan and they cannot have a plan. And of course, we know and you know, having been very much intimately involved in the drafting of the Affordable Care Act and having written one of the key provisions uh, that saved uh, uh, Americans billions of dollars by requiring uh, health insurers to put uh, a huge share of their money directly into actually what they're supposed to be doing. Once they put the structure in place, which was essentially the same structure that Republicans had come up with in 1993 to uh, come up with their alternative to the Clinton health care plan and that Romney used, one that was built around trying to make sure that everybody was covered with an individual mandate and that you had competition among exchanges, but with a certain set of provisions so that every plan covered people adequately, which included protections uh, when it came to uh, pre-existing conditions. That was the core of it. And once the, in the tribal life uh, in which we live, Republicans decided that they were going to oppose it and every particular of it. They were left with nothing. They have no alternative that they can use that actually does cover pre-existing conditions. And all the talk about how they would protect it is as empty as uh, the moral fiber of Donald J. Trump. There was no ability to talk for 30 seconds, for 20 seconds, for 10 seconds. And to some extent that worked to Trump's advantage because I got the feeling at some point he might have said, oh, shoot, I could either learn something and prepare for this, but I haven't in the last four years. It's like going into a athletic competition and you haven't done any exercise in four years <laughs> and then going like, well, I better, I really bet I'm going, I'm going to, uh, into the ring with, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali I think I better train this week. I mean, he, he, he has no ability. He doesn't know anything. And no, and he has no interest in knowing anything. Exactly. So instead yeah. of that, he interrupted and yelled. And so that you couldn't talk about anything in any depth at all, any depth at all. And I hope that at least in, in this new format, they will be able to do that because you, you would be able to destroy this guy. If you could actually talk about health care, if you could actually talk about climate, if you could actually. And this guy would just go, he'd just say, no, uh, uh, Obamacare is terrible. That was literally a word, something he said, right? Yeah. It was interesting to watch uh, when the family came in and the entourage came in, but the family especially, the Trump family. They did not look happy at the beginning of the... Yeah, that's uh, weird because they're such happy people. Well, I think there may have been a couple of reasons. One, it's entirely possible that they had cautioned him against going too far and that he had rejected it. But 
if I had to guess, my guess is that on the plane coming in, they had some intense discussions about Trump's taxes. Melania, who's probably signed tax returns without ever looking at them and was told that she was not allowed to look at them, now perhaps realizing that the prenup involves a set of assets that are not there. The uh, kids uh, understanding that the Trump enterprises, uh, which they're involved, may not have uh, anything left to them. And all of them realizing that they may end up in the slammer that would be a tense flight, wouldn't it? Uh, now, yes, it would now be. Now that you're um, framing it that way, yeah, yeah. And if you saw, of course, the uh, in the aftermath of the debate when it was over, and by the way, sitting there, uh, we were uh, a few rows behind uh, Joe Biden, and Jill uh, was pretty tensed up throughout the debate, as uh, as any loving spouse would be. And she went up on the stage afterward, and, and she and Joe had this warm, long embrace. Uh, and then Melania went up on the stage and barely touched Donald and, and, and had the usual uh, That doesn't mean anything. You know, face. different people have different kinds of uh, uh, physicality. I don't think that means a thing. I don't think that means a thing. I'm sure they're very... Very, very close. Very close. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, what I was fascinated with on the taxes uh-huh. is that Chris Wallace brought up the thing. You only paid $750. And he asked him, how much did you pay? And three times he wouldn't answer. Yeah. It, right. And then yeah. finally he said, Mr. Brown, how much did you pay? And he goes, I paid millions. And if he millions paid in federal taxes, in federal taxes, you know, that one. You know, the previous day when the tax returns were first out and he was asked about them, you know, first, of course, he said it was fake news. But then he basically acknowledged that he'd only paid $750 in federal taxes and said, yeah, but I paid a fortune in state taxes. And here he gets up there and, you know, doesn't answer. And then he decides, you know, if I'm going to lie about this, why should I make it a petty lie? Let me go all the way and say millions, millions I paid. Here's the thing. He was asked three times and didn't answer. If he had paid millions of dollars in, in yeah. taxes, he then, if he really had, he would have said it the first time. Oh, you know and what? He would have released it his is, returns. It is so inaccurate, the New York Times. I paid millions, in, and I'm going to release my uh, taxes, and you'll see the New York Times is lying. I'm finally showing that the New York Times is fake news, and I'm going to do that by releasing my tax returns. But then he said, well, I'll I'll release it when when they're finished. I have another suggestion for a guest for you, and that's Adam Davidson, who writes for The New Yorker. And Adam has been all over this story, sort of combed through these tax returns, because, of course, the real story is not just that he lied and manipulated to keep from paying taxes, uh, stiffing the IRS and and uh, saying to Michael Cohen, can you believe what idiots there are when he got a, a clearly undeserved $80 million, $70-some million uh, refund? The real story is the money laundering. And what Adam has pointed out is that when Trump was in this dire position, you know, facing personal bankruptcy and all of that, and then all of a sudden, in like 2011, He's got this bundle of cash and he's using it to buy golf courses, all of these investments that have been hemorrhaging losses ever since. But it's classic money laundering. And this was right around the time that the Azerbaijanis and the Russians 
were laundering money through to buy golf courses. So, and he was paying cash, which of course, real estate people never do. They want to leverage themselves. There are like smoking guns everywhere here suggesting that this was money laundering. I did a tweet the other day that was, uh, I think it's time for the Southern District of New York and the New York Attorney General to depose Anthony Kennedy's son. You will remember that Trump on the floor of the House uh, chamber when he was doing a State of the Union message, when Kennedy was still a Supreme Court justice, went up and they had a pretty warm exchange in which Trump, as they caught on the audio, was talking about how wonderful Kennedy's son was. Then we get this bizarre experience of uh, Kennedy resigning prematurely uh, so that his protege, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, could get on the court. And of course, all of this, uh, the predicate is that the son was in charge of many of the loans at Deutsche Bank, which was the only institution willing to lend money to Trump when he was completely underwater and no other bank would go anywhere near him. And we need to learn more about that because, of course, Deutsche Bank is notorious for laundering through Russian money. There are ties here that are amazing. If we defeat this guy, I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of investigations into this. And I Which think is it, why he's so desperate to do why anything he's he can to keep and, from leaving. Uh, so, Norm, thank you. Al, it was fun talking to you. Always, always, Norm. I hope Norm. we'll do it again soon. Well, thanks very much to uh, Norm Ornstein. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back with Franklin Four and Natasha Bertrand. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f***? are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com this episode is brought to you in part by audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Frank Four, staff writer for the Atlantic Monthly, and Natasha Bertrand, national security correspondent for Politico and uh, political analyst for NBC and MSNBC join me. Uh, guys, let's start with uh, John Radcliffe. He's the uh, director of national intelligence. Uh, let me put it this way. If you were the president, would you want John Radcliffe to be your national intelligence director? Well, 
if I was the president and I wanted somebody slavishly devoted to my interests who would be willing to overlook facts and threats to the United States in order to protect my political future, then I'd say Ratcliffe is the guy. Okay. Uh, how about you, Natasha? Ratcliffe had virtually no experience in the intelligence community before he was appointed to this position, which has traditionally been held by veterans of the national security and intelligence communities. He had about a year and a half on the House Intel Committee as his kind of qualifying experience to be appointed to this role. And of course, he was a huge defender of Trump during impeachment. So I would say that if I were Trump, this is the perfect person to have in this position. If I were any other president, this is probably not the guy that you want in that role. Okay, well, you guys are, you know, are biased because you know a lot about this. <laughs> Am I correct? In what sense? <laughs> uh, well, uh, this is your beat, and it has been uh, your whole career, right? Yeah, yeah. So I've been covering national security and politics since I started journalism, and this is someone who, you know, people in the intelligence community were like, well, I guess he's better than... Rick Grinnell, but not by much. Um, Rick Grinnell's another Trump loyalist who was the acting director of national intelligence for a few months before Ratcliffe was appointed. And neither one of them have intelligence and experience, but as the president has been trying to purge people within the intelligence and national security communities who don't agree with him, it makes logical sense that these would be the people that he selects for that very important position. Recall, Al, uh, that he was actually nominated or Trump uh, flirted with nominating him for this post m many months ago, where he had even less experience on the Intelligence Committee. And most Republicans in the Senate kind of threw up their hands and said, this is even too much for our us to swallow. And in the Trump era, Republicans rejecting a hack Trump appointee is is a rarity. So I think that on, on the hackometer, um, that was, I think, a, a sign that he was pretty far gone. But he got a couple more months of of seasoning. Yeah. So what did Radcliffe do lately? I mean, why are we uh, talking about him? I mean, I know, <laughs> I know the answer to this, uh, but you guys don't. <laughs> um, well, on Saturday, he, he announced um, that the office of the director of national intelligence would no longer be giving in-person briefings to Congress about election security. So they would be sending written products to the committees to read about activities related to threats to the 2020 election, but they wouldn't be sending people to have conversations with members of the House and Senate about election security concerns. So what they said was that they were really worried about leaks, and that's why they put an end to this practice of, of having people go down there and actually speak to the members about these threats. But it doesn't really add up because there had been leaks for many, many months about election security issues from the Hill, which is always to be expected. And they continued to schedule these briefings. So something seems to have changed um, in the last week or so that made Ratcliffe feel compelled to tell members of Congress that, hey, we're not going to engage with you in person anymore. Um, because that kind of in-person engagement makes it so that members of Congress can actually push back and ask questions and elicit more information from the intel community than just something that they would receive on a piece of paper. And th those, those confrontations were the things that were leaking. And ultimately, what did leak was that a top official in the government had said that Russia was again trying to help 
Trump win re-election. The Intel community, particularly Ratcliffe, was not happy about that leak. Subsequently, uh, it's been scrapped, the in-person briefings. But I think we also need to um, stitch this incident, which could seem minor, into a broader narrative about uh, how the Trump administration has handled questions about Russian interference. And so if we jump back to, I think it was February, the acting director of national intelligence was a guy called Joseph McGuire. And unlike Radcliffe, he was a a veteran of the intelligence services, a widely respected guy, uh, the type of person that you would like to have in this job. And one of his deputies went to, I believe it was the House uh, Intelligence Committee, and described the threat of foreign interference and answered questions. And a few weeks later, McGuire and his deputy were fired by Trump. And so the problem is, is that there is this kind of relentless pattern that kind of traces back even to the Comey firing at the very beginning of the administration, where the administration doesn't really want to talk about Russian interference. It doesn't want to answer questions about the 2016 campaign. You know, there's this is just a very dangerous situation because in order for the nation to defend itself against an attack by Russia. It needs to be able to talk about the prospects that it's being attacked by Russia or, or China or Iran or whoever, because it's it's a vast distributed system. There are 8,000 jurisdictions that administer elections and are potentially vulnerable to Russian attack. And so if the, the people who know aren't saying that there's a threat, the people down the line aren't going to do what they need to do to respond to that threat. The Congress isn't going to pass legislation that might bolster our defenses. And because of that, we're, we're left vulnerable. You know, it makes you suspicious. <laughs> and it makes you suspicious. You know, that uh, that Russia helped him get elected in 16 and that, you know, Trump is, I don't know, compromised, which we really know that, right? I mean, there was collusion and, and lots of it. You guys have read the, the full report from the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a long one. And how long was that thing? 966 pages. And it was volume five. <laughs> it was just one volume. So that was your job, to read the, that thing? Yeah. Uh, is there anything in those 900-plus uh, pages that my listeners might be interested in? There's a lot. It's more than twice the length of Mueller's final report. and. It covers a much wider range of issues regarding counterintelligence threats to uh, the country posed by Russia and by the Trump campaign's dealings with Russia in 2016, whereas Mueller's report was very limited to a narrow criminal investigation. So the Senate Intel report could actually address broader questions and be a bit more speculative about what actually happened four years ago. So probably one of the biggest takeaways is how far the Senate was willing to go, the bipartisan um, Senate report, I should add, Republican senators signed off on this, um, in describing Trump's campaign chairman at the time, Paul Manafort, as someone who was a very serious counterintelligence threat. And also, the person that he was in regular communication with, Konstantin Kolomnik, was a Russian intelligence officer, according to the Senate. In a way, they're saying here, just flat out, that this was collusion, right? I mean, they're they're not using that word. But when you're talking about the campaign chairman giving polling data to a Russian intelligence officer and communicating with him regularly about, 
you know, updates to the campaign and things that they're doing, it's it's hard to describe it in any other way. And that's what the Senate report, one of the biggest takeaways of it was, I think. And uh, that was internal polling data. It wasn't like the latest Gallup poll, right? <laughs> it was internal polling data. Yeah. And in the Mueller report, that was internal Trump campaign polling data on Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, right? Yeah. And the suspicion among many people has has always been that the Russians then used that information to figure out micro-targeting. So who to target for voter turnout, voter suppression efforts, um, and how to try to swing those states in Trump's favor. It is still unclear to what extent, if at all, the Russians use that data to inform their advertisement targeting, especially on Facebook and other social media platforms. Paul Manafort's excuse has always been that he gave the polling data over to show that he was just doing well in the campaign, that he was running a winning campaign again, and he was trying to drum up business. But it's a question that's still very much unanswered. Yeah, it was uh, just trying to drum up business uh, with Russian intelligence agency by showing Russian spies how close things were in in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and and Minnesota. Look, if if we review what the Russians did, they were influencing the election by targeting people uh, with Facebook ads and not just ads, right, but just anything on Facebook. You know, and it would be nice for the Russian Internet Research Agency to know exactly who to target. Let's see. Your internal polling shows that black males in Detroit, Milwaukee and Philadelphia are soft on Hillary. Let's let's target the ones who have shown interest in Black Lives Matter. Huh? You know. Let, let's target them with anti-Hillary stuff. Yeah, Al, just to refresh everyone's memory, um, Konstantin Kalimnik was Paul Manafort's right-hand man. That when uh, Paul Manafort started doing work in the former Soviet Union in 2004, uh, he didn't speak the language, any of the languages. And so he needed an interpreter. And he hired Kalimnik to be his interpreter. And Kalimnik is um, a diminutive little guy who comes from Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, who studied at the Russian Military Intelligence Linguistics School. He was kind of uh, Manafort's Manafort. He would trail after him. He styled himself to be like Manafort. He dressed like him, used the same cars. He went from becoming his translator to becoming his chief deputy in Kiev and became kind of like a son to him. They would text each other about everything, about women, about clothes, about cars. And wait, um, wait, 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 wait a minute. Um, the, the women. Uh, Paul Manafort was married. He had a mistress in Kiev. Uh, oh, that is that is so disappointing. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. A man of a high moral character, you don't expect something like that out of him. Um <laughs> You know, I wasn't counting on being disillusioned in this interview. <laughs> no, no. So Manafort, Manafort, even as he's come back to the United States to uh, restart his career, is talking to Kalimnik on a daily basis. And they communicate surreptitiously. And so they use encrypted communication devices where their messages automatically disappear. And they would write one another draft emails that they would never send that they would keep in folders on an email account 
that they shared. So they could keep perpetually erase them after having read them. And there was no record of transmission. And so uh, there, there's two two things I think that are significant in this report. One is that um, they were talking every day about confidential sorts of things. And so we don't know what, they, what he was passing on. And the report is very explicit in saying that Kalimnik didn't just study at the Russian Military Intelligence Linguistics School, but that he was an active Russian agent through the campaign. And even more significantly, it says that he was tied into the the effort to disrupt and interfere with the U.S. election in the form of the hacking and leaking of email. And we don't know a lot about this because it's redacted in the report, but all of it is highly suggestive that the Manafort-Kalimnik relationship you know, seems pretty bad when we have we know for a fact that he was passing along polling data, but it's probably even worse given that Kalimnik was in even deeper into the Russian operation than we'd known previously, and that their communication about campaign stuff was likely much, much, much more extensive than just uh, kind of a one-time or two-time passing along of polling data. So uh, they could see that. Um... Black men in 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 Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin uh, were soft on Hillary, and they could target them on on uh, on Facebook uh, using Facebook's algorithms, which are are also very granular, and uh, target black men in Philadelphia and Detroit and Milwaukee who have shown interest on Facebook in Black Lives Matter and target them with negative stuff on Hillary, like her uh, super predator quote from like 1994. Now, is that what they could do? Is that how this was used? I think so. And and I also think it's worth noting here how unprepared the intelligence community was to deal with something like this. So in multiple accounts, people who worked for the FBI, who worked for the agency, who worked for DHS, at the time, they've all said that, you know, they just had no idea how to deal with the onslaught of disinformation and basically the targeting that was done to American voters by the Russians because they had never experienced anything like that before. They had never had to deal with social media campaigns and and influence operations online to that extent. So when the Russians were maybe using this polling data, for example, to target voters in swing states and try to impact the election in that way, the Obama White House, as well as the intel community writ large, were just totally not equipped to respond to it. And of course, another matter entirely is whether they even wanted to respond to it at that point. But, you know, they they just they just were caught totally off guard. So what else was in the uh, 900 pages of, of the report that uh, I might want to know about if say I were, you know, a curious person. Now, I think that the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence uh, Reports on Russia are really the best documents that we have detailing what happened in 2016. It's, um, It's a much more compelling and thorough narrative than the Mueller report. It, it just does a better job of telling the story. And and so it looks, this, this volume of the Senate report looks at every single one of the allegations that Trump was 
colluding with the Russians. And so it begins with Manafort and it ends by looking at the, the allegation that Trump was somehow compromised. And I think it's a pretty fascinating section of the report because while it explicitly concludes that there was no evidence that the Russians blackmailed Trump. It goes on to detail Trump's visits to to Moscow and his behavior on those trips to Moscow. And given that this is a sitting president of the United States, it's kind of remarkable what they air in the report. They quote people who were who were eyewitnesses describing a tryst that he had with the former Miss Russia. One of his uh, Trump's good friends is quoted about going to a strip club in Moscow. There's a quote from somebody else who describes uh, Trump showing up at a meeting in the Moscow mayor's office with two women on his arm. It essentially concludes that the Russians would absolutely be trying to collect compromising information on Trump. And it concludes that he very likely engaged in behavior that would have been compromising, the sort of stuff that would have been mana for a Russian intelligence agent to collect on a figure like Trump so that they get used it against him later. We just don't have any evidence that they did use it against him later. But it's 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 a fairly fascinating and in its way damning account of Trump's previous trips to, to Moscow. Let me ask you this. Uh, do the Russians ever, I don't know, follow you in any way or put microphones any anywhere? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, they've been known to do that before. And in fact, in a different section in the report, there's a description of how Trump's security guy is asked whether Trump would like to have several women sent to his room and the request is handed to him by a total stranger that kind of reeks of um, a honey trap uh, type of uh, mission that that Russian intelligence uh, engages in quite regularly when famous visitors come to Moscow. And the Senate report had so much detail. I mean, they actually managed to get the receipts from Trump's room in Moscow from his visit to 2013, showing that they had that his room had actually run up a bar tab, a hefty bar tab of like $150. And that that in and of itself raised questions because Trump doesn't drink alcohol. So who was running up that bar tab and who was in his room? And what does this say about his comments about what he actually did in Moscow that night? And these are just, there are little details throughout the report that just reveal the immense amount of information the Senate was able to collect in the last four or five years that investigators are still flagging as potentially significant. Well, you know, he might fancy a late night Virgin Mary or two or a Shirley Temple. So that's not dispositive, <laughs> I uh, I suppose. But whether it's women in Moscow or money to bail them out, I, I, I think it seems pretty likely that Trump has been compromised. Uh, but we know for sure that the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians. And we know that explicitly from the report, and not just Manafort and Kalimnik, but also the release of the emails uh, if not the hacking, and and there is much more in the report of a connection between Stone and uh, Manafort and uh, Deripaska, right? Yeah, so the report hints that Paul Manafort and Konstantin Kolomnik may have had a role in the hacking and leaking operation that the Russians carried out. And then the rest of that section 
is redacted. So it's really tantalizing. Um, and they don't explain how they know publicly that Paul Manafort may have been involved in this. But what it does outline in detail is, you know, the Trump campaign's efforts to take advantage of Russia's, you know, leaking operation through WikiLeaks. And it's a very extensive, detailed part of the report all about how Roger Stone was talking to the Trump campaign almost daily about the WikiLeaks releases, how it was very clear that the Trump campaign knew it was publicly reported at the time that Russia was behind the WikiLeaks releases. And that on the day that John Podesta's email was leaked, Roger Stone had learned that the Access Hollywood tape was going to be put out by the Washington Post. And he scrambled to get WikiLeaks to release the Podesta emails that he had been informed about a couple days earlier. So in that sense, they really did use pretty much in real time what WikiLeaks had gotten that the Russians had stolen from the Democrats to help them politically. The timeline there is laid out, I think, in the most detail that we've seen and in the most incriminating way that we've seen, frankly. If we just examine the few things that we've been talking about, they kind of summed to one of the biggest scandals in American political history, that you have the manager of a presidential campaign in daily contact with a Russian intelligence agent who is working to subvert the election. You have a top campaign advisor to the Trump campaign in daily communication with a cutout for the Russians who was able to release devastating information at a crucial moment in the campaign where the Trump campaign could have been destroyed by the Access Hollywood tape but managed to use Russian WikiLeaks to redirect the conversation. So, you know, what we're talking about are really significant channels of communication and talking about collusion that actually substantively changed the trajectory of the campaign. And let's not forget the release of the DNC emails the the day before the Democratic convention in, in Philadelphia, okay? Right, which 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 made it so that Hillary would spend the rest of the campaign struggling to consolidate the Sanders vote. And therefore not consolidating it, which led to a lot of Bernie supporters not voting or or, or voting for Jill Stein or I suppose some for, for Trump. Just to add something quickly, it wasn't even just, you know, members of Trump's campaign that were trying to to do this on their own, Trump was also obsessed with the missing emails from Clinton's server. You know, he publicly requested that Russia. Find that was a them. joke. I, you know, I laughed. <laughs> I mean, just because you laughed. <laughs> I remember thinking, wow, I know comedy. And that is a well, a great well-crafted joke. joke. Um, but he, you know, <laughs> this was something that he was overseeing essentially. Um, and and members of his campaign were more than willing to, to carry it out for him. And the other issue that the report, the Senate report brings up is that, you know, they, they come the closest that anyone has in saying that Trump lied under oath to Mueller when he submitted answers to written questions saying that he didn't remember his conversations or having any conversations with Stone about WikiLeaks. The Senate report said that that was just highly implausible. And yeah, just raised, raised the very real the likelihood that Trump committed perjury in that sense. You know, that's why they made uh, Trump take the uh, dementia test. Uh, Gee, how could you not remember uh, your conversations with Stone, Mr. President, about WikiLeaks, huh? So uh, let's take uh, take this going forward now. Maybe there's a reason, perhaps, that Radcliffe will only submit written briefings and not allow committee members to ask 
questions of his people. What do we uh, think is going to happen between now and the election in terms of uh, what the Russians are going to be doing? What we have is history to guide us that Russia has interfered not just in the U.S. election in 2016, but it's interfered in basically every major European election and elections across Latin America and Africa. We know that there'll be a a pretty high temptation and uh, high know-how when it comes to messing with the election. And so there are a couple avenues that they've historically used to interfere One is that they've collected a tremendous amount of information about the electronic systems that are the infrastructure for American voting. The American electoral system is hugely dispersed. There are more than 8,000 jurisdictions that administer elections. And Russia, in the last election, um, managed to probe the computer systems of all 50 states when it comes to their election infrastructure. And they managed to also infiltrate the systems um, used by the vendors that sell equipment to these jurisdictions. So they have this incredible topography of our um, the electronic infrastructure of American electioneering. And the question was, last time they collected all this information, but they decided to, to stop just short of actually interfering with the election. And according to a lot of people in the intelligence committee, what they were doing was casing the joint. They were collecting information that they could use in a future attack. And they've launched similar sorts of attacks in places like Ukraine. The other thing that they can do is that they can continue the social media campaigns that the Internet Research Agency and trolls in St. Petersburg perpetrated in the last election. That's become significantly harder because the social media companies, to their credit, have clamped down on some of this interference and there's better information sharing. And so that's possible, but a little bit harder to do. They can hack and release emails um, and communications belonging to people in the various campaigns. And if they did something like that, they would likely do it at the last minute when it can achieve maximum chaos. And that's been a pattern that they've established in other countries. And lastly, they can move money into um, American campaigns. And that's something we just pay very little attention to, even though We now have hard evidence that they successfully did that in 2016 and 2018. We have the indictments of uh, Rudy Giuliani's co-collaborators, Parnas and Fruman. And in that indictment, it was clear that Russian, a Russian individual who was unnamed was sending hundreds of thousands of dollars into uh, super PACs. And that money found its way into helping Republicans. And Trump, yeah. There's also an operation that Russia-linked actors are carrying out right now to smear Biden that the top counterintel official uh, in the U.S. announced publicly a couple weeks ago, um, which was really remarkable that he would actually name one of these Russia-linked actors who was trying to to undermine Biden in this in this election. But we may not get that kind of information moving forward due to the change that the director of national intelligence made. Can you explain that one? What what was that one and, and, and what did it reveal? Essentially, Bill Evanina, who's the top counterintel official in the country, announced in a public statement that 
a guy by the name of Andriy Durkach, who's a Ukrainian lawmaker, was trying to sow disinformation about Joe Biden and his relationship with the Ukrainians prior to the election to try to smear him as corrupt and as a thief and basically spreading Russian talking points about how Joe Biden and not Trump is the corrupt one and about how Joe Biden and not Trump is the one who is practicing nepotism and all of this stuff with regard to his son, Hunter. So that's sort of an extension of, of the impeachment. Exactly. So it's it was the Trump defenders argument during impeachment counter argument that no, Joe Biden really does need to be investigated. And Trump was right to ask the Ukrainian president to do this now is being extended into people who, according to the US intelligence community, are act- actually working on behalf of Russian interests to push this into the mainstream. And they're being successful in large part because of Republican members of Congress who are allowing this to be laundered into their committees. So whereas the Russians had a lot of help, frankly, from the media in 2016 and kind of getting this information into the mainstream, now it seems like they're successfully getting members of Congress to legitimize it. Let's move on to the election that's coming and uh, what the Russians are going to do. You know, a lot of people say, well, the Russians are going to be back, but I don't think they actually uh, ever left. (laughs) And uh, what, what do we think they're going to be doing uh, between now and November 3rd. Well, if we knew, it would be easy to stop. And I'm, I'm not saying it's all up to you, Frank and Tasha. No, I think <laughs> that, 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 what they, what they uh, have is um, a fairly comprehensive strategy, um, a, a fairly robust set of tools that they can use to seriously disrupt the election. And if I, I think, to me, the scariest thing that Russia could do is amplify or provide grist for Donald Trump's charge that the election is rigged. So let's say election day rolls around and it's clear that he's losing in the polls. And if there's some shred of evidence that somehow the process has been tainted or not legitimate, or if Trump's predictions of, you know, his allegations of fraud have some sort of shred of of basis, then he's going to try to say that the results of the election are illegitimate. And so what they could do and what they've done in, in, in Ukraine in, in 2014 is they could, say, hack into the, the Wisconsin State Board of Elections website and put up false results that showed that Trump was actually losing. And that suddenly would give every Twitter demagogue, conspiracy theorist, the president, basis for trying to discredit his loss. And I think that's really the nightmare scenario that we're facing. And it's it's fairly, it would be fairly easy for the Russians to pull something like that off. And like I said, they 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 tried a similar sort of stunt in Ukraine in 2014 and were modestly successful with it. I, I think uh, people really should be cognizant of uh, these uh, possibilities, familiar with them, which will give us maybe a little bit of defense Yeah. And I think the scary thing, too, is that people in the intel community don't really seem to know what the Russians are doing either. I mean, when you speak to them, they're like, well, you know, we haven't really seen as much activity as in 2016 surrounding, you know, the scanning of voter uh, infrastructure. And there hasn't been nearly the level of activity by the Russians specifically um, in trying to penetrate these systems, nor has there been, have there been as many successful attempts to do that. But what they say is like, okay, so what are they doing instead? Look, their, their goal is not just to discredit the election. It's not just to help Trump. It's to discredit 
democracy to discredit American institutions. And there are just so many potential targets. I've, I've heard a lot of, of um, experts talk about their fear that media is going to be a juicy target for Russia this time, that it's not like Republicans need any further evidence to get upset at media and to believe that media is biased. But, you know, it's, it's not inconceivable that Russia could hack the AP or the New York Times and reveal correspondence between writers and editors that somehow expose media bias in a way that kind of further ratchets up distrust of media and further cranks up the anger of Trump's base. You know, I think that the Biden campaign is probably better protected in, in, in most ways uh, against a cyber attack, but I but I know for a fact that there are a lot. You know, you just see you, you just see the Biden people. You email with Biden people; they're they're not necessarily all using. Well, just look look at uh, John Podesta. I mean, they got in his email. I just I just hope someone on the Biden campaign has explained to Biden um, <laughs> what phishing is. There's a lot more sophistication about how those sorts of operations work. They they do something called. Um, social graphing. And so, you know, they'll follow a campaign advisor on social media and they'll know that, hey, this advisor likes bass fishing. And so they'll send them carefully crafted email uh, about how there's a bass fishing sale at the shop and they'll, they'll, they'll perfectly mimic it. But if you click on the link for the sale, you're, you're suddenly giving the Russians access to your computer. What would be funny is if uh, what how they got in actually got in was an ad for lures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be delicious. <laughs> One of the big Trump issues he's trying to push is uh, law and order and violence in the street. There's a lot that the Russians could do to whip that up, right? Yeah, we know in 2016, they were making events on Facebook pages for both sides so that both sides, protesters and counter-protesters, would show up and just, just square off. Um, and it was completely manufactured. I mean, these these events were started by the Russians and disseminated by the Russians, and it was just to, to stir chaos um, in the streets. So it would be unsu- we don't have evidence yet that that's what's happening here, but it would it would be very unsurprising if they were using the same tactic. So this is a very fertile area for them to, you know, make hate groups show up, you know, say Portland. Russia is not stupid. And ever since, the you know, the KGB during the Cold War tried to exploit America's race problem um, in order to divide and destroy the country. And we provided them with a pretty juicy target. And if you go back to uh, the Charlottesville rally, a year after Charlottesville, there was um, a counter rally. It was against the Unite the Right. And that rally began with people in St. Petersburg posing as Americans, sending direct messages over Facebook to various Americans, and then having extended conversations with those Americans about how to orchestrate the logistics for such a rally. And it poses a very complicated question for the social media companies, which is the Russians may have seeded the idea, but it was Americans who carried the idea forward, and at what point does it become illegitimate? But we know that they've been in touch with the far right, and they've on social media they've tried to stoke and promote and amplify far right arguments, uh, arguments of militias. We know that they've done the same on the left; that they uh, they were kind of fascinated with Black Lives Matter, and, and were, were were perpetually trying to find a way to amplify Black Lives Matter. Uh, 
uh, messaging and also to insinuate themselves virtually into those networks. So right now it is in Trump's interest to heat things up, to stoke things up him, himself, but he also has a partner in that. When you look at what Russia's objectives are in American politics, you'd have to say say that they're they're succeeding pretty wildly. Some of it is they're doing that they've been shrewd in how they've stoked hatred, but most of it is our own doing. We're pretty good at, at trying to destroy our own democracy in the basis for our own politics. And you know what what makes this situation so perilous is that um, Russia doesn't need to go full tilt to try to destroy American democracy. A feather push from Russia could have devastating effect. And and if they decide to just kind of gently push certain buttons or to inject certain pieces of misinformation into the, the system at the appropriate moment, it could just have devastating effect. What should we be looking for for the, the remainder of the campaign uh, to see what might be coming from the Russians or other allies of, of Trump and the Trump campaign? Uh, probably disinformation is a big one that's still a serious problem. Um, as Frank said, the social media companies have done a good job, well, a, an okay job of, of clamping down on some of it, um, especially when it comes to foreign actors spreading disinformation. But just kind of being savvy news consumers and, and, and asking where this information is coming from and who is motivated to put it out and what is suspicious about it, I think could go a long way in identifying um, these efforts by, by foreigners to interfere. Um, the Russians, I think, probably have changed their tactics a bit since 2016 because they know that they've been caught. Um, not that they probably care, but they know that they're, everything that they were doing in 2016 is kind of out there as, as having been tried and true. Um, so paying attention to things that I think the Intel community is trying to put out there about the people and the individuals who are pursuing these, these Russian efforts is also important because as opposed to 2016, when the Intel community was extremely tight-lipped about any of this stuff because Obama didn't want to put his finger on the scale, we've actually seen a bit more transparency this time around coming from FBI, DHS, and the Intel community writ large about Russia's motives and about you know what they're actually trying to do, which is undermine Biden. Those are pretty remarkable statements for them to be putting out. And experts say that we just really need to read between the lines on these things and and, and recognize that that this is them trying to be proactive this time around. One of the things out that makes it so hard is that a lot of what they're doing is is imperceptible. Um, and so, uh, to give you an example. The last time around, they created a lot of content on social media. They created memes and photos and slogans, and they were very active generators of theories and rhetoric. And this time around, um, in order to not get caught by the social media companies, their accounts are less active in terms of generating actual substance, and they exist in order to amplify or to kind of place the, their, their thumb on the scale of the argument. The other thing that they really want us to do um, is to kind of lose our lose our sense of balance. They want us to panic about their own presence, really. They're delighted to, that Americans are so obsessed with Russian interference because we're inflating their significance in the world. We're making them seem 
like their um, omnipotent actor on the global stage, and that makes them that makes them feel good. That makes Putin feel like he's uh, he's bolstering his reputation with his own people and bolstering his his global reputation as as a as a villain. So what you're saying is, I uh, I probably shouldn't air this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, or, or maybe we're just, uh, you know, Al Franken, handmaiden of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, so don't panic, everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.